0: What did you expect would happen when Joe Biden declared his candidacy for president?
1: I think I expected it to go pretty much as it's gone. Dahlia Lithwick writes about Washington and the law for Slate. High name recognition. He is a meme. You know, the sunglasses guy. <laughs> People just kind of have this deep
0: fondness. To be honest, Dahlia is pretty fond of Biden, too. Even some of the stuff that other people drag him for, like that video he put out announcing his candidacy.
1: She was kind of into it. I think his Charlottesville ad was freaking beautiful. We can't forget what happened in Charlottesville. Even more important, we have to remember who we are. This is America. And I thought it was powerful. At the same time, I guess I thought he had 20 years, 28 years, to figure out what his answer was on Anita Hill. And did I expect him to just blow it and then go on The View and blow it again and then go on you know, national television and blow it again? No, I expected him to have given this meaningful thought. And whatever it is he's doing doesn't feel like he's processed what happened. Back in 1991,
0: when a law professor named Anita Hill accused Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment, it was Joe Biden who got to make the call about what happened next. He was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. Looking back, almost no one thinks he did a very good job. And he spent the last week apologizing for that. You reached out to Anita Hill. She has recently said, when asked if she felt it was an apology that you had extended, she said no, That she said I cannot be satisfied by simply saying I'm sorry for what happened to you. I will be satisfied when I know there is real change and real accountability and real purpose. Well, see, I think uh, that's what she told me. I, I was grateful she took the call. Did you watch the apology tour? Yeah.
1: I am sorry she was treated the way she was treated. I wish we could have figured out a better way to get this thing done. I did everything. He's in this interstitial space between I take responsibility and I'm sorry for your pain, but he hasn't married those two things together. I don't know what he's taking responsibility for, and I don't know that he really is sorry for her pain. He expressed his regrets? Well, I think he did the the new millennium apology, which is I'm sorry you're sad. Anita
0: Hill has said that after spending hours testifying about deeply personal experiences and then watching as the man she'd accused was sworn in anyway, she wants Biden to do better, to step up, to publicly acknowledge he hasn't done enough to prevent what happened to her from happening again.
1: I actually feel bad because he's obviously struggling. But it's a funny role reversal, right, where the woman is saying, I don't care about my feelings, frankly, don't care about your feelings, fix the system and the guy is just like kind of a puddle <laughs> talking to all these women interviewers about how sad he is and i find it it's so fascinating i mean just as a kind of cultural moment he's doing this thing that has become what we do when we get caught for things now which is just to kind of implode into a big puddingy thing <laughs> Dolly
0: wants us to set aside this gush of emotions and ask, what exactly happened back in 1991 anyway? If saying I'm sorry isn't enough, what more do we want from Joe Biden? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. So let's go back, because I feel like you're you're saying some really interesting, specific things. But I think people have really forgotten the hearing itself. I, I just wonder, what, what were you doing in
1: 1991? Were you in law school? Were you... It was right before I started law school. Do you remember watching these hearings? Oh, my God, yes. I was writing a book, and I was in some cabin in Pennsylvania. And I remember having one of those TVs where you had like an antenna that you'd have to sort of hurl into the wall in order to get TV reception. And you couldn't move once you got it. Um, But I remember gavel to gavel watching. I remember feeling so acutely that she had done this, I thought, rather remarkable job, especially because these men were belittling and shaming. And I think that's the thing people forget, right, that they're comparing her to the exorcist and they're telling her, you know, she's an attention whore. I mean, awful, awful. And she just flatlines her way through it. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? I think the one that was the most embarrassing was his discussion of, of pornography involving these women with large breasts and, and engaged in variety of sex with different people or animals. That was the thing that embarrassed me the most and made me feel the most humiliated. And then Clarence Thomas is mad. And he's like fireworks. He's fireworks, he lets them have it.
0: This is a circus, it's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves.
1: That feeling when Clarence Thomas got mad, which was exactly the feeling I got sitting in that room in the Senate when Brett Kavanaugh got mad.
0: This is not American. This is Kafka-esque. It has got to stop.
1: It's funny how visceral it is to see a process in which the woman gets to have her pain, but the man gets to have rage. And Joe Biden was leading this thing,
0: right? It, he was yeah. the head of the Senate Judiciary yeah. Committee, yeah. gavel to gavel. He you know, gaveled into session and he said, you know, Clarence Thomas should have the benefit of a doubt. And he also said that I, Joe Biden, have the power to rule out
1: questions, if it's getting out of line.
0: And then what happened?
1: The Republicans came in completely aligned, on point, loaded for bear. They were going to get this guy confirmed. There was a plan. And I think that Biden really, he just wasn't prepared, that he came in trying to be in a very Obama-like way, a statesman, trying to be bipartisan, trying to be fair, trying to meet everyone where they were. And you have Senate Republicans who are just sitting up there saying, you should see the mail I'm getting about what a whore you are back at school. You know, like unbelievable attacks from Republicans in the Senate. And I think he just didn't realize that they were going to burn the whole thing down.
0: I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? And this hearing was all about allegations Nita Hill had made that Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her while she was working at the EEOC, right? working under him, yeah. But even though she was making these allegations, she was really the person who was being questioned and
1: interrogated harshly, right? Right. I mean, this was the culture at the time. And we, again, forget that in 1991, the culture allowed them to say, why didn't you report it? You know, why did you stay friends with him? Why did you keep in touch with him after? You know, the kinds of questions that now were a little bit more savvy than to say out loud, why didn't you go to HR? Because we know, right? We've If we've learned nothing else from Me Too, it's that these are power problems, not sex problems, and you just don't report your boss.
0: If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life?
1: That's a very good question. I always think of this Law Review article that Kitty McKinnon wrote about a year ago where she was talking about Title IX adjudication in college campuses, and she said, still to this day, for every accused, there have to be three accusers, right? Like, the number of women who have to come forward to equal one man's story is- Because of the power dynamics. Because of the power dynamics and because, like, women are generally just not hugely believed. I know that that's somehow in dispute. What did you see from Joe Biden in these
0: hearings that stood out to you, where you thought, this is a problem?
1: I certainly remember having the sense that he was bending over backwards to look fair that it was very important to him. And this is so salient today, right? This is this is Rod Rosenstein now. This is attempts to look fair in situations that are inherently not fair. But in a way that's honorable. Sure it is, in the same way that Rod Rosenstein is honorable, right? But in order to look fair, he had to trash the press in his speech last week. Uh, so I think that it's always a problem. And there is this asymmetry of... I believe in the process. I believe in the process. That's what Biden's saying. He's saying the truth will out. And so I'm going to create the fairest process I can without understanding that there was one team that came to use that process to smear and belittle Anita Hill. And one team that came to that process, I I don't know quite what Democrats on the committee were doing, but they didn't look as though they had a plan.
0: One of the things that really stood out to me, the more I read about The Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings and Joe Biden's role in it is the fact that he could have called other women to come forward and support what Anita Hill was saying. These three other women have put themselves out here out there over the years saying we expected to be called and they weren't. Can you tell me a little bit about those women? Because I think a lot of people don't remember their stories.
1: Yeah, I think there were there were two other women who'd worked at the EEOC. And one was this woman, Rose Jourdain, who would corroborate some of the accounts of Thomas's behavior at the EEOC, and uh, Sukari Hardnett, who wrote to the committee, quote, if you were young, black, female, and reasonably attractive, you knew full well you were being inspected and auditioned as a female. Uh, by Thomas while working for him. And Angela Wright was the single most important person. She was also a former EEOC employee. She said that Thomas had asked about her breast size. He had pressed her for dates, which is the thing he'd allegedly done to Hill. She was deposed. She was flown to Washington. She was supposed to be subpoenaed. And then Biden never called her. To be clear, Biden seems to be saying now that they chose not to come to testify.
0: Yeah, it's this interesting tug of war where he's saying, I wanted them to testify. I had them sign an affidavit saying they were welcome to testify and they were declining. But then you also have a former aide of his coming forward and saying, yeah, I recommended that. They made a
1: strategic decision. They made a strategic decision. They thought they'd pop it into, uh, you know, they just take the depositions and pop it into the record and then it would be some kind of gotcha. But what it meant was that there were no names and no faces. There was no, there needed to be a team and there wasn't. So Biden made this strategic choice, like, okay, I'm just going to
0: take everything they've told me, write it down, make sure all the committee members have it. But because it was faceless, this was a big problem. The other thing we should say is that Joe Biden did vote against Clarence Thomas. In some ways, it's like he's doing everything right, just not at full capacity, I guess, is the way to say it. It's like he's actually checking all the boxes. He's not voting for him. He's putting the information in the record. So if he
1: were to do it all over again tomorrow, what would you want it to look like? Well, I think that's that's the conversation I want him to have. I I want to start from the proposition. And you're right. The generous version of this is he wasn't psychic. He didn't know what was going to happen when he gave Thomas the opportunity to speak first and speak last. He didn't know what Thomas was going to do or say. Uh, He was trying to be fair. He was making decisions that he didn't have the foresight to know would prove unfortunate because the whole story didn't come out. And so you're right. That's the generous view. And then he ticked the boxes. I think we have to make decisions about how we're going to do these Senate hearings generally. We've now seen two of them that were spectacularly awful, in which the public finds the witness to be as credible as possible and believes her wholeheartedly, and then turns around and says, What? We don't care. And I think that what Biden could do today is say, stipulated, that was a mess. I didn't know. I made mistakes. Should have called Angela right. Whatever. But say it. Say and own the problems rather than saying, I'm so sad that she's sad. That's sad. Well, I think he would say, well, these
0: hearings were a mess. And afterwards, I really tried to fix things. It spurred my interest in the Violence Against Women Act. I made sure that there are women on the Judiciary Committee moving forward, and that was me. I did try to fix structural problems. Why isn't that enough?
1: I think that would probably be enough for a lot of us. And I think the question then becomes whether it's enough for Anita Hill. And maybe what's tricky here is that we're using her as the yardstick for what is adequate and sufficient. And I don't speak for Anita Hill, obviously, but I think she would probably just say until he recognizes how these so-called fact-finding enterprises are stacked against the accuser, then that's just not going to work for her. And I, I again, I think it takes you back to the central irony, which is she's not holding herself out as this tragic, broken figure. In fact, every time I've ever <laughs> interviewed her, she's fine you know she doesn't want pity she just wants to know that when the third person comes out and accuses the next supreme court justice who may have allegations that there's a system in place that isn't a joke and i think that's all she's really asking and that doesn't seem a huge lift to
0: me i want to talk about anita hill because in like the 30 years since this happened She's gone on to live her life as a professor. She's at Brandeis, right? Mm -hmm. And you've spoken to her a number Mm -hmm. of times. And she's really made talking about gender inequality and harassment her life. And she said the legal remedy has really failed here. The legal remedy against sexual harassment, which I think is interesting because you're saying we need to fix the legal remedy. And she's almost given up on it.
1: Right. And that's the Kitty McKinnon story, too, right? That the people who were the architects of legal systems are... And I don't think... I mean, I think Professor Hill is the first person to say, no, we just fix it and we fix it. I mean, she really is such a passionate believer in the law. But I think that she looks at this as... You all are laser focused on me as the victim or Dr. Blasi as the victim or whoever the victim is in any one story. And that doesn't fix processes. What fixes processes is realigning power. And I think maybe, maybe that's the answer. Here I am. I'm wending my way to the answer to your earlier very hard question, which is what does she want? I think she wants somebody to recognize that having that power... And not acknowledging that having that power requires fixing systems rather than just saying, you know, as Biden has said, like, I was responsible. I had the power. But like not repairing it, I think, is the thing that just devastates her, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it's like trusting the system is the ultimate male
1: privilege. Yeah. I think that she would simply say, gather information and don't use these as a smoke screen to have kind of the theater of fact-finding without facts. We can't keep calling these processes. They're not. They're performances. Dahlia, thank you so much for
0: chatting with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Dahlia Lithwick writes for Slate and hosts the Amicus podcast. All right. That's the show. Before I do the credits, I have a super special announcement. I just heard that on June 8th, which is Slate Day in New York City, I'm going to get to interview Wyatt Cenac, the comedian, live on stage. I'm super stoked about it, and I really want you to be there. So if you want to see this, please come through and get your tickets as soon as you can at Slate.com slash Slate Day 2019. All right. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. Today, we had help from Samantha Lee. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.